Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE dot com. This is The Weeds. I'm John Hill. And I don't know if it's just me, but it feels like the spectacle of celebrity looms larger than ever now. Last summer, two of the biggest names in pop music brought in hundreds of millions of dollars touring. Ticketmaster's massive site crash during the fan pre-sale for Taylor Swift's Eras Tour. U.S. tickets for Beyonce's Renaissance World Tour finally on sale. This real estate agent offering to help fans list their homes so they can afford tickets. Open up the social media feed of your choice and you'll find people pouring over every action of their favorite actors. Even trying to read their lips during award show commercial breaks. But one of the biggest examples of the pull of celebrity right now isn't even in Hollywood. He's trying to make his way back to the White House. This has been an incredible experience. The people have been, this is the third time we've won. But this is the biggest win. Former President Donald Trump handily won the Iowa caucus, as was expected. And while the race to the GOP nomination isn't over yet, Trump is still ahead in national polling. Election years are always full of surprises, so I don't want to prognosticate. But I do want to explore what keeps voters on Team Trump. 91 felony charges and all. Like most things in our society, Trump is a mirror. He's reflecting things back to us. Yes, how we vote, but also our relationship with fame and even how we see ourselves. Trump has more than voters. He has fans. And honestly, politicians have for a while now. Today on The Weeds what fan culture teaches us about politics. My name is Asia Romano. I'm a culture writer for Vox. Asia writes about the ethics of culture and has done a lot of work exploring fandoms in particular. Fandom is just a general name for a community of fans. <laughs> it's pretty simple. It's come to mean something very specific in terms of online culture in that it's usually referring to a group of people who are in an online community or communities for the things that they're fans of. I imagine that fan communities have existed since probably, I don't know, the dawn of time. Like, I can imagine, <laughs> you know, someone's like, ooh, that particular cave painting is my favorite cave painting. I want to talk to other people who also enjoy this particular cave painting. But give us a little history. How has fandom evolved over time? If you think about the sort of reference that you're talking about, you might think of things as like... um 
I don't know, like in the Victorian era, people had societies, you know, and, <laughs> and they would they would come together and have societies to discuss things that they, you know, different topics. And that was sort of a an elevated, like high class fandom, if you will. But the term fandom actually originated within sports fandom. I think baseball was the first community to actually use the word fandom. And what we have here is then two kind of overarching divergent trajectories. So you have sports fandom, which pretty much evolved this concept of fandom community very internally within the sports community, kind of left on its own for most of the 20th century. Um, So by the time the early 2000s came around, you had this very entrenched idea of sports fans being in different fandoms for the different teams that they supported. But that idea has kind of different from everything else that happened in the 21st century around the concept of fandom. And that part of fandom really evolved from basically the early 20th century. We had sci-fi fandom and like weird fiction popping up in zines. Uh, do you know what I mean when I say zines? Yeah, um, that's in like small indie magazine, right? Exactly. So zines were very, very popular in sci-fi fantasy and horror fandom in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and throughout the mid-century. And they spawned this very kind of culty enclaves of fans who would kind of have debates and argue with each other and write stories, kind of advancing each other's stories through these zines. And so the zines kind of cultivated this community, and that community became known as fandom. And then throughout the 20th century, the latter half of the 20th century, as women became more liberated and began to participate more and more in the public sphere, they also began to express their own version of fandom. And all of this really converges online in the early 2000s. Mm. So you have fandom really over the last two decades coming to the forefront of mainstream culture. What was once a very shamed and denigrated space, especially where women were concerned, you have that becoming kind of a... I think there's a there's a re-reckoning um, that takes place within the late 2000s and early 2010s where women really start to reclaim fandom and talk about it more openly and make it more public. And it becomes sort of this reclaimed feminist empowerment space. Then in the latter half of the last decade, what we really see is the rise of stan culture. And when I say stan, I mean specifically like celebrity followers, basically. So this is kind of funny because if you are online, you see people talking about stans and standing a lot. But... I think, especially for maybe younger folks who weren't around for it, people forget that this came from an Eminem song. Anyways, I hope you get this, man. Hit me back. Just a chat. Truly yours. The biggest fan. This is Stan. Yeah, exactly. A very popular Eminem song. And it was originally used pretty self-deprecatingly by fans to describe their own behavior, right? To kind of call out the ironically toxic nature of being fans of celebrities, right? But it's also just really useful. It's really useful to have a verb like (laughs) in the form of the word stan and standing. And I think it's, uh, for the most part, especially because of K-pop fandom, really mainstreaming the concept of of stan culture. And I think, I I don't want to totally credit Twitter for like the Western English language celebrity side of this. But I think Twitter culture has had a lot to do also with mainstreaming standing and standum. Yeah, I think I think that's really interesting because, you know, when I think of standing, I think of dedication. You know, these people who will stick by 
their favorites no matter the circumstances. And, you know, we'll get into some of the ways that's mirrored in politics. But what are some of the pop culture examples that we've seen of standing? Are there any like sort of mainstream examples we've seen? Sure. I mean, the most, obviously the most popular over the last couple of years would be, you know, BTS, Beyonce, Blackpink, Taylor Swift, obviously, Nicki Minaj and the Barbs. The Barbs! Barbs! I think the Barbs are a really interesting example because their relationship to Nicki Minaj herself is so kind of codependent at this point, and they very much Mm. are their own thing. But you also have, like, any type of of celebrity fandom where the collective have, like, named themselves, like, Directioners or... um, The Beehive, yeah. Yeah, or the Swifties, you know, anything like that certainly makes an argument for itself as a standum. (laughs) But but I think the need to call these people stands kind of evolved from the more general use of fandom and fans to describe activity and practices that were focused on consuming media as opposed to consuming a celebrity. You know what's interesting? I can hear people saying like, okay, but what does this have to do with like our electoral politics? What does this have to do with whoever is president? But I think we've seen politicians get stands in recent years. I think think Trump is a really good example Mm -hmm. of that. See this gentleman? We built, he's dressed like a wall. I love this guy. He goes to, he's been at 150 rallies probably, right? Absolutely. Trump is. I mean, even people like George Santos, like AOC, she, like these types of people who are, they're politicians, yes, but they're also very much public figures. They're in the limelight for reasons that aren't necessarily related to their politics. Yeah, it's it's like they are symbols for more. Yeah, yeah. We see that a lot in celebrity fandoms, too. If you think of your relationship to a celebrity, like your parasocial relationship, it's not to the celebrity itself. It is to the persona that kind of exists now. And that persona is both, it's a collective product, right? Like, the, it's, it's a, a product of what the celebrity projects about themselves into the public, right? Um, but it's also a product of what the public projects back onto the celebrity. The public persona of the celebrity is this kind of, collectively created, evolving thing that stands outside of the person behind that celebrity. Also, because it stands outside of them, the persona is often larger or even disconnected from the person, which is why we sometimes see so much unexpected fan backlash when somebody behaves in a way that differs from the collectively created persona we thought we had in front of us. And it's interesting the power that persona can have. Like, I remember in 2016 when Trump said, I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. You know, he he still has a very, very big backing. Like, a lot of our colleagues who look at the numbers are saying, yeah, there's a good chance that A, he's going to get the GOP nomination and B, could win the presidency again. And a lot of that is in part because of those voters, those super fans. Right. And the thing is that the his persona is has become so archetypal at this point for what his fans want him to represent that what he does and doesn't do or say that that lives up to that persona or contradicts it or undermines it, it doesn't really matter because they have invested so much of themselves into the collective creation of this idea of who they think Trump is. So we've talked about fans and stands, but I'm wondering 
what are the characteristics in these figures that draw these super fans? Like, what's part of this persona that we see in Trump or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? What does Trump have that Ron DeSantis doesn't? It's going to be different for every politician, right? Because obviously it differs from individual to individual, um, whether you're talking about a Hollywood performer or a Washington performer. But the key here is performance, right? Trump is a natural showman. He has innate charisma. He knows how to make himself the center of attention. He knows how to out-bully and out-perform and uh, out-boisterous everybody else in the room until all eyes are on him, even if they maybe don't want to be. And that's sort of an innate showmanship that I think Ron DeSantis lacks and a lot of the other Republican nominees lack. And it's interesting because you look at many of our politicians who have been kind of front runners for the nominations in recent years that necessarily haven't gotten it. You know, look at Bernie. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can argue that one of his chief, not flaws, but maybe one of the reasons that he didn't get the nomination is that he failed to kind of ignite the user base by evincing the same type of charisma, or at least a different type of charisma, right? Like, it's not the type of showy flamboyance that that you feel can go toe-to-toe with somebody like Trump. What is the difference between a fan and a stan? Can you break that down for us? There's a lot of overlap, obviously, because stans are inherently fans. But when we talk about stan culture, we're talking specifically about celebrity fandom. And we're talking about the practices that go with kind of reading celebrity personas, reading celebrities as texts almost, if that makes sense. Mm. So you're not just sitting around waiting for the, the celebrity to do something. You're actively consuming things that they've already said. You're going back and looking over their interviews. You're um, communing with other fans about the the knowledge that you've gained. You're sharing theories, performing analyses of their body of work, which, in, of course, in a politician's case, would be uh, interviews and and policies and so forth. With celebrities, it's usually, to take Taylor Swift as a very glaring example, it's going to be her lyrics, her the way she directs her music videos, the choices that she makes in her social media posts, et cetera, et cetera. All of that is really ripe for analysis and kind of deconstructing and decoding by fans. And when I say decoding, there's a subset of fandom, and it's not necessarily relegated just to fandom. I mean, like, this is sort of happening in every fandom right now. <laughs> but there's this tendency to really kind of read into what the celebrities are saying and what the politicians are saying and extract from that these, like, deeper layers and symbols and hidden meanings. And in other words, these codes that may or may not be real. And uh, I think a lot of people would argue that Taylor Swift deliberately inserts a lot of like Easter eggs, but how much of that is actually real and how much of that is is what the fans are kind of extrapolating is highly up for debate. And most of it we'll never know. And with someone like Trump, you have things like QAnon and its offshoots that are really, really highly designed and orchestrated to kind of whole meaning from the the various speeches that he's given, the various cryptic comments that he's made over the years, and to to place them within a social context and turn them into conspiracy theories. And it's really kind of fascinating the way that that happens, because it happens with a certain kind of regimented, narrow-eyed perception. Mm. I'm interested kind of why that happens, because supporters get conspiratorial really quickly. And, you know, we've seen that impact from everything from QAnon and also, you know, the New York Times 
recently came under fire for writing about the Gaylor conspiracy, which is this conspiracy theory that, you know, Taylor Swift is secretly in the closet. Right. Why do things like this happen? Why are fans so predisposed to go down these rabbit holes that often just aren't true? Well, I think it comes back to the core of fandom, which is emotional investment, right? Mm. And I think there are a lot of reasons that we're seeing this play out now in the year of our Lord 2023-24. If you look at sort of what you might call the epistemic breakdown of reality (laughs) uh, that we're seeing across the board, you know, across the U.S., many people don't necessarily share the same paradigm. They don't they don't necessarily experience reality in the same way anymore, right? Mm-hmm. There's no longer a shared collective construct of reality that we can all agree on. And this comes to bear in many, many ways. But in fandom, <laughs> one of the ways that it comes to bear is in shaping how people receive information and shaping how they are inclined to interpret what a celebrity gives them because they are so invested emotionally in adhering to, again, their version of the persona that they've created and their version of the narrative that they've created around that persona. So basically what you have is this determination to read things in the way that fits that narrative, no matter what. And as things get harder necessarily to reconcile with with reality, like with the the clues and the actual things that are happening in the real world. For example, whether it's Taylor Swift getting a series of boyfriends or Trump losing the election, the more reality itself disconnects from the narrative that you created and the persona that you've identified with and that, that you are emotionally invested in, the harder you have to work to create logical links back to to keep reassuring yourself that that persona is real and that the way that you've interpreted things all this time are are real. Like, it's sort of the sunk cost fallacy to a degree, mm. you know? But the thing is that also, the more you dig deeper and look for clues, the better you get at digging deeper and looking for clues. And the more convinced you get that you were right, because anytime you find something that quote-unquote validates your version of the truth or whatever, it not only validates you in that specific moment, but it validates everything you've thought before, right? So you just have to keep like searching for more validation and more hits. And every time you get a new dopamine hit, it justifies everything that you've done before. And this is how people fall into these rabbit holes because a rabbit hole doesn't happen out of nowhere. It happens because people keep trying to dig for more quote-unquote clues that they think lends itself to this overall narrative that they created. And even if you can take a look, if you step back and you're looking at this narrative and you're like, this doesn't make any sense, it's full of holes, it's full of flaws, it's full of paradoxes and contradictions and internal illogic, the person who's in the rabbit hole can't see it. It sounds like you could be describing... QAnon, or you could be describing like the hoops people are jumping through to figure out when or if Beyonce releases the visuals for Renaissance. It's the same. It's all the same thing. And and I say this having watched fandom for like I've been in fandom for what, 25 years at this point? 25 years. I've been in fandom for a quarter century. I'm <laughs> aging myself to a huge degree. And in that quarter century, I've seen these types of conspiracies play out over and over again. And I've observed from afar, and I've observed them from right 
next to me. The the fandoms that I'm in right now have spawned multiple conspiracies. And <laughs> and it's really hard. It's really difficult sometimes just to be next to that and not partake of it because sometimes you just feel like you're being gaslit and sometimes you feel like everything is a lie and everything is it's 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 a head fuck, honestly. Um <laughs> but the thing is that you if all of your friends, if you think about these subcultures that we're discussing as communities, if all of your friends are telling you, oh, this is real, this is real, look at this, look at this new clue, you're all excited and galvanized by your collective communal reading of this text, which in this case is a, a celebrity, how are you going to be the one to step back and be like, no, I don't think we need to go this far? You know, you're not. You're going to just go where your friends go, and you're going to create these narratives together, and you're going to all get more consumed there's a, a fandom that is not my fandom, uh, thank goodness, but is adjacent to one of my fandoms. And over the last two to three years, they have evolved the the very diehard conspiracy theory that their main idol is not himself, but is a hologram. Oh. Because, <laughs> yes, because they are so convinced that he himself has betrayed the persona that they created for him to the extent that they decided he couldn't possibly be real and that he's been kidnapped by his manager who has made a hologram version of him. Oh. <laughs> yeah, this, that's a legitimate thing. It's on Vox.com. <laughs> I wrote about it for Vox, so like, and you can find out more there. But like, this type of thing happens because people are so wedded to their version of the narrative that they, they become unable to step back and realize, okay, there was some point at which we went wrong and we went off the deep end and we now have to to walk ourselves back. They just, they lose the inability to walk it back. Yeah. I mean, that can sound so, like, how do you believe this? But there is also a segment of the population that believes JFK Jr. is still alive and mm -hmm. will be coming back. And you see this happening throughout the culture. It's no longer just relegated to, you know, QAnon. You look at the rise in anti-vax disinformation and the number of people, like, even among otherwise reasonable like, science believers who, who have just kind of, you know, now they're throwing shade at vaccines, you know? Now they're kind of like, eh, I don't know about vaccines, you know? <laughs> like, how did we get here as a population? Um, it's not because, you know, millions of Americans suddenly went QAnon. It's because enough of this stuff has gotten into the mainstream and sort of infected the, the general watering hole. What happens when fandom enters politics? Up next, when supporters become stands. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. 
Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash weeds. That's Burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Support for The Weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. We're back. This is The Weeds. Okay, Asia, what are the parallels that you see between fandoms and the electorate? If we think about fandom as being driven by emotion, <laughs> this is primarily the thing that that also obviously ignites consumers and, and ignites the electorate and gets people to vote. It's what it's the basic marketing tool, right? Like it gets people to buy stuff, it gets people to consume things, it gets people to go to the polls, and it gets people to to believe in this case in American identity, right? And how wedded you are to your vision of America kind of has a lot to do with how much you feel voting can make a difference, right? The Republican Party in general has been very good over the last several decades at drawing people into these cultural battlegrounds on the basis that there's something threatening, something that is at its core is attacking what the average American values and what the average American values about America itself, right? They are able to really successfully frame liberalism and frame progressive politics as being a threat to American identity and the American way of life in a way that triggers an, a deep emotional response in people. Mm. And that core impulse is essentially what we find in fandom. You know, it's what drives us to, to latch on so closely to our favorite celebrity or our favorite piece of media that we've seen a million times. 
or to our favorite character and to feel like we have to kind of protect that character or that celebrity or that thing that we love. We have to kind of hold it dear and keep the unworthy from getting their hands on it, right? <laughs> I mean, that's the same type of vibe that we're that we're talking about at Root. I think there's an argument to be made that this has always existed in some form in politics. You know, I can point to the hagiography of George Washington in particular. And, you know, that was the very founding of this country. But I'm wondering at what moment, or if there's more than one moment, that we really started to see this shift, that we really started to see the celebrity, the celebrification, I guess, for lack of a better term, of of politicians. I don't know that there is a single moment. You know, I think you can look back throughout the history of American politics, and there, there have always been moments where politicians have had to be showmen, you know, they've had to do the rounds. They've had to go on the tours. They've had to do the stomp circuit, right? And in those moments, who wins or loses is as much about their ability to be personable, right? Their ability to to deeply engage the average American beyond their actual, like, literal political viewpoint, right? Mm-hmm. So that's always been the case. And I think we really kind of see it ramp up around the, you know, the mid-century. You know, there's the famous televised debate where JFK won the debate because he was better on television. And I think that that's something that maybe was a turning point, not necessarily the rise of something new, the rise of the politician as public performer first and politician second, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that I think that really makes sense. I'm also curious about sort of this crossover we see between celebrity and politics and how maybe they've even influenced one another or working in tandem. It's the same thing, like with Trump, for example. Like, he began as kind of this public figure who then became a reality TV star. Mm. So his reputation was made not on his politics, but on his his ability to kind of commandeer the American public's attention. He was never necessarily a politician first and foremost. He was always a celebrity first and foremost, and politics was kind of an afterthought. And obviously we can look at other politicians like Arnold Schwarzenegger, Ronald Reagan, obviously, because these are people who have learned how to channel the public's innate interest in them already (laughs) into a political career after, you know, their acting career, such as it was, had waned. And I think that that's really interesting because it implies, too, that there's something of politics that is innately about celebrity. Mm. And I'm not sure how true that is, but I definitely think that for the better part of human history, the best politicians have also been celebrities. Or at least not the best, but the best (laughs) known politicians have been celebrities. I mean, I don't think that anyone would argue, for example, that Napoleon wasn't also a celebrity. Like, I mean, yeah. still, he's still famous today. You know, he's still famous for being that short little guy, you know? <laughs> yeah, or I think, like, you know, people are always like, oh, what did Obama read this summer? Or, like, what were his top songs of the year? And that is not, like, a typical politician thing. That's, like, that's that's being that's an, an influencer. influencer. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely being an influencer, you know? Or, like, I don't know, Hillary's pantsuits, you know? (laughs) Obviously, things that have nothing to do with her politics, but are so, like, integral to the way that we receive them, you know? This is just something that I think politicians, like, really good politicians understand that is going— they understand that this part of their public persona has to be on point, right? It has to be something the public can engage with and draw from and project onto, in order for them to be successful at getting the public to even listen to their politics. 
I want to talk about what we project onto these figures, both the traditional celebrity and the politician. You know, I think of Beyonce showing her recent concert film in Israel, and there were disappointed fans. I think the disappointment Swifties had when Taylor Swift didn't say anything ahead of the 2016 election. And of course, we see that in politicians, too. You know, Senator John Fetterman is a good example of that happening recently. What happens when these figures go against the vision their supporters have for them in their heads? When their politics don't align with what their fans think they should align with? Well, I think the reaction, the backlash can often be very swift and intense. Look at somebody like John Mulaney, for example, where Mm, (laughs) where his his whole career went kind of immediately slid downhill because he divorced his wife, which when you say it like that, it sounds really bizarre. But I think, of course, people who were following that understand that the reason that happened was because people were immediately kind of disillusioned with him because he had built his brand around being the wife guy, right? It wasn't just that he failed to live up to his brand. It was that he suddenly stepped away from, again, that collectively created persona that we had all built with him. And so people were going, how dare you not live up to this persona that I've created of you in my head? Um, But also, I think there's a a lot of real resentment there because, again, it's something that he helped us create. Like, he created it with us and we created it with him. So it felt kind of like a a betrayal of the social contract. (laughs) Which is a lot to it's a lot to project on to somebody divorcing their wife. But this is this is the kind of of trap that you run into when you're a public figure and you you brand yourself a certain way and you present yourself a certain way because there's always the danger that you won't ever be able to live up to the persona that has now been created around you and not necessarily always with your consent, right? And I think we see this time and again with with politicians who aren't able to live up to either the persona that they've that they created through their own policies and through their own political rhetoric or uh, the persona that has been created for them by the public. For example, if you look at the way that Joe Biden has handled the the dark Brandon meme, he's tried his best to live up to that. But I think also the whole reason the dark Brandon meme exists is because people know that he is never going to live up to that. It's kind of this impossible over-the-top archetype of, I don't know, this like gun-toting, super cool, like... I don't know, CIA operative (laughs) type uh, figure who is never going to exist in reality. But I think the fact that it's never going to exist in reality is sort of an ironic commentary on how milquetoast Joe Biden is himself, or at least how milquetoast people find him. And I think that that's kind of indicative in and of itself of the way that personas can completely live outside of the person, no matter what they do to control it. Sometimes you just can't. There are so many similarities we have between the way we navigate politics and the way we navigate pop culture. After the break, what one can teach us about the other. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. 
What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let Wise help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using Wise worldwide. To learn more about how a Wise account could work for you, download the app or visit wise.com. That's wise, W-I-S-E.com, wise.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. What lessons do you think we could learn about our politics from fandoms? Oh, man, there are so many. I mean, I think knowing and understanding that the core of all of this is emotion, not just emotion, but community. It's emotion in a community. Emotion getting amplified because you're in a community of people who are all feeling this excited about the same thing that you are. That is such a heady core experience. I think it's at the heart of so much of the zeal that we see in modern politics today and in modern political fan bases. There was this piece recently that was like basically comparing Trump fans to Taylor Swift fans. And it was very much like, hey, these two things are kind of the same. But I think that that's sort of, that's just a jumping off point. You know, yes, they are obviously the same because this is human nature. It's human nature to to love being in a community of people who are all excited about the same thing you are, whether that's people getting excited about Jesus on a Sunday morning or people getting excited about Taylor Swift on a Saturday night. You know, like it's all coming from the same kind of core human need to connect And I think that that's really kind of fundamental to the way that we need to understand modern politics, because all of that is a jumping off point for what then happens, which is this like next level toxicity, these rabbit holes, the conspiracy theories, the kind of inviting (laughs) the people kind of competing over whose narrative is better, like all of this sort of meta textual stuff that then comes in. It's all based on the basic root of people wanting to connect and be in this emotional state together. Throughout this conversation, we've brought up this, there's this sort of, it's an elephant in the room we discussed, but we haven't really gotten into it. And that's the toxicity of fandoms, whether it's politics or pop culture. Can we talk about the dark side of it? One of the things you have seen over the last two decades is obviously not only the rise of the internet, But starting in the 2010s, the rise of social media as the dominant form of social communication, right? And social media really changed not only the way people interact with people, but the way communities interact with communities. 
The internet behavioral researcher, Alice Marwick, who's a very prominent figure in that field, has a theory that she developed after basically doing a lot of study on this uh, across a lot of internet communities, including fandom, including political communities. And she dubbed this theory morally motivated network harassment. And it's really simple, but it explains so much. And so I wind up referring to it a lot because it really explains the way humans behave on the internet where social media is concerned. And morally motivated network harassment basically says, if you are morally motivated, that is, you think that what you're doing is justified because there is a higher source of validation behind it, right? And it it doesn't matter whether it's religious in nature, whether it is actual, what we would define as moral, or whether it's, I don't know, you're a barb and someone is making fun of Nicki Minaj. Or you are really into the Marvel Cinematic Universe and someone just suggested that, I don't know, um, Captain America is not queer and in a secret relationship with Bucky. Or you are a Trump fan and someone just suggested that uh, there are many things that that you could be upset about if you're a Trump fan. But the point is that if you feel morally justified and you're in a community of fans or just a community of people on the internet or bots on the internet or people you think are real humans that might be bots on the internet, (laughs) if you're in that community and they're all morally motivated and you are morally motivated harassment of the person that is doing the quote-unquote immoral thing will happen and you won't recognize it as harassment. In other words, you are getting validation from two different sources. You're getting it from the feeling of being morally righteous, whether or not that's real, and you're getting it from all of the people around you encouraging you and you're getting communal validation from that kind of collective satisfaction that you've harassed this person. And because there's a collective satisfaction and you feel like it's justified, you won't recognize the interaction as harassment. And so what she found was that she could show similar types of behaviors coming from other sources. And the people who were doing the harassing would be like, yeah, that's harassment. And then she would be like, well, what about your behavior? And they wouldn't they'd be like, no, that's different. It explains the actions January 6th. Absolutely. Where, you know, people feel very, like, morally, like, no, this was a stolen election. I'm doing what's right. Like, all of my friends are also doing what's right. We're all here. Like, it's, that's a real-life example of that. It absolutely 100% is. And I think also it explains why it's so difficult to talk to people beyond these info silos, right? And beyond these ideological silos. Because you try to reach out to somebody and you make what you think is a perfectly compelling rational argument. But because they're motivated by their internal moral compass, which has, again, as we've talked about, evolved out of this need to pursue this emotionally crafted narrative, it's almost impossible to get them to to accept the same facts that you are accepting, to accept the same interpretation of those facts, and to accept the same interpretation of their own behavior. Why are these things so tied to our identities? Why is belonging to an in-group, whether, you know, it's being a Democrat or being a Barb, why, why is that so important to us? I think that's the age-old question. I mean, The core of human history, right, has always been this trajectory of progressing from fear to openness, basically. Mm. I think, like, the primal instinct is always um, fear of the unknown. And fear can be a really heady uniting factor when you get together with other people who are like you, who are also scared of the same things that you're scared of. 
not even scared, but who are wary necessarily of the same things that you're wary of. I think it can be a really heady bonding experience to be in that state where they're validating your fear and your suspicion and your dislike of the other guy and you're validating theirs. How do you, and I mean this as more universal you, I mean, how do people maintain political integrity when our culture trains candidates to be performers? You know, how do we not end up with a Congress full of George Santoses who like was very entertaining, but not necessarily great for democracy and who kind of hit the nail on the head when he did his interview with Z-Way and was like, y'all keep inviting me to stuff. The lesson is to stop inviting you places. But you can't, because people want the content. Right, exactly. This is the question, and this is the question that I think we have to continually ask of politics, because we're in this, uh, this era, this cultural moment, where we increasingly see, especially from the far right, this new crop of politicians who are almost entirely meta-performers, like they are performing ironic trolling. They're performing these very kind of outlandish platforming of ideas that are extremist and far beyond the what we consider the Overton window of acceptable thought in society. Mm. But they are doing it in such a way that makes it hard for middle America to point at that and, and say that's extremist, that is so far beyond the pale that you should not have a career in politics. Because, A, they're all doing it together, and it's kind of like playing whack-a-mole to try and identify one of them as being the problem when they're all the problem, right? And B, they're doing it couched in so much irony that if you try to pin them down, it's just, it's slippery. It's hard to pin any any of this rhetoric in place, right? And I think part of that is because we have turned politicians into performers to the extent that having a sincere rhetoric and having a sincere ideology is almost secondary at this point to the the ultimate goal, which is the performance itself. All right. Asia Romano, thank you so much for joining us on The Weeds. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure. That's all for us today. You can find a link to the articles we discussed in the show notes. And if you want to give us some feedback or have a topic you'd love to get into the weeds about, shoot us an email at weeds at vox.com. Thank you to Asia Romano for joining me. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Christian Ayala engineered this episode. Dean Wynn fact-checked it. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall. And I'm your host, John Glenn Hill. This podcast is part of Vox, which doesn't have a paywall. Help us keep it that way by going to vox.com slash give. Are you a Nikki fan? What? Am I a Nikki fan? Pull up in the Sri Lanka. What? What? More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.